Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Hashtag Clocked In with me, your host, Jordan Edwards. I'm thrilled to have you tune in as we dive into the dynamic world of productivity, success, and stories of incredible individuals who've mastered the art of getting things done. Whether you're commuting, hitting the gym, or just relaxing at home, this podcast is the go-to source for inspiration and actionable tips to level up your productivity game. I'm on a mission to unravel the secrets of those who seem to effortlessly manage their time and achieve their goals. So if you're ready to clock in and unlock your full potential, you're in the right place. We've got a lineup of amazing guests, industry experts, and thought leaders who will share their insights and strategies to help us crush your to-do list and make the most out of every moment. Get ready to get inspired, motivated, and equipped with the tools you need to supercharge your productivity. This is Hashtag Clocked In with Jordan Edwards. Let's dive in. Hey, what's going on, guys? We've got a special guest here today. This is Spencer Gore. Spencer founded EMJ back in 2012. The company is now regarded as one of Europe's leading digital health communication companies with a database well over 1.2 million healthcare professionals and relationships with all of the top 20 pharma companies in the world. After 10 years of hard work, EMJ has made it to the 60th on the Times 100 list of the fastest growing businesses in the UK. Spencer is a serial entrepreneur who loves innovation. Over a 20-year period, has launched seven different businesses, working in television, travel, publishing, recruitment, sports, and healthcare. He's gained a range of well-rounded leadership skills that have applied to all of his businesses. Uh, he's a multiple award winner, including the Queen's Award, and recently voted Entrepreneur of the Year. Spencer loves helping create gold medal winners whose values are completely aligned and who are determined to constantly improve themselves. Spencer, how are we doing today? Hey, Jordan, I'm very well. Thanks very well. Always lovely to hear introductions about yourself. Remind you what you've done, what you've achieved in life. You forget about that sometimes, don't you? But yeah, I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. We're excited to have you on. Thank you very much. I know we're going to get into your childhood and all that, but what did you do this week? What happened this (laughs) week? I could answer that in so many different ways, but I guess the answer that you're you're looking for is I... uh, I actually visited Buckingham Palace and uh, had a little chat with our future king, Prince Charles. So, yeah, pretty pretty exciting how, evening. <laughs> how was that? And why did awesome. that happen? It was awesome. It was very surreal. Uh, so uh, you mentioned there, we, we recently won the Queen's Award for International Trade. Um, so as part of that, we we, uh, we were kindly invited to Buckingham Palace. Uh, the Queen has stopped doing those sorts of engagements pretty much these days. But uh there were six royals there, um, and yeah, we got to chat to a few of them. And well, obviously, we I got to chat to a few of them because of COVID. There was only one per, per company, but it was pretty cool just driving into Buckingham Palace through the gates with all the soldiers there, and then parking in the main quadrant at the front of the Buckingham Palace, going into the throne room where the Queen sits, and you know, just meeting all these. There was two hundred and fifty business owners or business people that had won the Queen's Award either for innovation or international trade or a couple of other things. Um, and, and yeah, I mean that on itself is pretty cool. When you think there's 5.6 million businesses in the UK, and 250 wow. were shortlisted uh, for a Queen's Award, and we were one of them. So um, yeah, that was really cool. And we we got to, I got to to chat to Princess Alexandra, and then had a, uh, a conversation with Prince Charles just before the end of the evening. So that was lovely. That's incredible. Yeah, I just thought that was a cool memory to always capture. Um, 
so for you, you today, Prince Charles, where did it start? Where did your journey <laughs> start for you? <laughs> a, a long, long way from there. Funny enough, when, I was chatting to one of the guys at the, at the at Buckingham Palace, and we were saying, when you set up a business, you don't think one day you're going to be meeting the future King of England in his in his house in London. Um, and yeah, I certainly when I when I started off in life, that was never a uh, a goal for me to to work towards. But I started off. I, I I live in London now. I'm in London now, right, looking out over the Barbican. Um, but I I grew up in Essex, which is uh, yeah, an hour on the train from from the city. Um, pretty normal background, really. But both, both my grandparents from from both my parents' side were were working class. Um, and both my mum and dad had worked hard to get us to that sort of middle class status. And I but I went to the local village school um and, and had a pretty cool pretty normal upbringing um nothing particular outstanding i struggled at school academically uh, i love school i love school because of the social aspect of it i love meeting my mates and playing with my mates and yeah. uh, doing doing cool stuff that you do when, when you when you're at school um but i just really couldn't get my head around the academic side of it so that was probably the the, the distinctive thing from my my childhood was the the, the struggle i had academically yeah, and where for you did you think you were going to go? Because uh, nowadays we always put so much emphasis on if you're not good at school, you're not going to accomplish anything. And it, it's sometimes it can't be further from the truth. Sometimes yeah, I mean, it can be, I, it, it's really a choice. It's very interesting line. So I'm curious how that was for you. Yeah, and, and I, I'm sure we'll touch on it later when we maybe talk about values, but. I think the way you're brought up is ingrained in you as a, as, as a child, whether it's your parents or whoever brings you up. And, and you, you can learn different skills at any point throughout your life. Pr- pretty much anyone can learn anything, I think, if you're given the right situation and the right environment. But your your your, your values are ingrained in you. And, and growing up as a kid, my dad worked for himself for pretty much all of all of my life that I can remember, certainly from, from when I was sort of 10 onwards, maybe even younger than that. Um, but my uncle, for, for, for example, was uh, in the police force and he was a quite senior in the police force. And, and my two cousins joined the police force because that's all they'd ever known. And, and actually, for quite a long period, I, I thought about becoming a policeman. And that was, I think, because my dad ran his own business and he was a financial advisor. I didn't really know so much what he did, whereas a policeman, I know what policemen do. You know, you stop, <laughs> stop bad guys robbing banks sort of thing, you know. So I knew I knew what he did. And that so that was something I... I really looked into and going to the police training centre in Hendon. Um, I think partly because to get to get into the police force, you didn't have to go to university and do all of that sort of stuff that that I wasn't particularly good at. Um, I've got a sister that's three years older than me, and she was pretty much the complete opposite. Yeah, she was really hardworking, really clever, uh, prefect at school. You know, top grades for everything. Yeah. So any special trips that the good kids could go on, she went on. <laughs> And then I was I was like, yeah, I didn't do any work. Um, and I messed around in class just to really sort of cover the fact that I didn't know the answers to most stuff. And I was naughty a little bit, never majorly naughty, but, you know, I didn't get to go on the trips that some of the kids went on because I couldn't be trusted to be behave. And, and so I never really thought, my sister went off to university and whatever, and I never really thought that was probably going to be for me. And actually, uh, during my A-levels, so uh, in England you do your GCSEs at, uh, 15 16 then you do two years of a levels then you go off to university for three years okay my gcse's i did 20 minutes revision in total for all of my uh 10 exams um 
and that's what decides whether you get to go and do your A-levels or not. And, and oh, I, passed, I, I passed them all. I didn't get great grades, but I got Caesar above for everything, which is good enough. Um, but then I did a year of A-levels, and I was really finding it hard. And after a year, I was like, that's not for me. And I just I remember going home and saying to my parents, I'm leaving school. Now, for my parents that had come from working class background, no one in any of their families had gone to university until they both went and they met at university. And so university was really, really important to them and really special to them. And then my sister had got into King's College over here, which is a very good university. So for me to suddenly say, yeah, that doesn't, don't fancy that. It's not for me. After a year, I thought was going to sort of cause a, an explosion almost. But they were massively supportive, brilliant. And, and yeah, so it said, look, it's, it's your life. You do what you want. We'll support you, whatever you do. We think you should carry on and go to university because that will be the best chance. But if that's not for you, we'll support you. And that was the nicest thing they could have done. And it was brilliant. But wow. I, then, I then went and worked in a pub basically for six months, washing up and I was kitchen assistant. And that was it. And I was like, I've got a bit of money. I quite like this. My mates are still at school and they've got no money. So when we go out, I'm a bit of a, you know, I've got some cash here, you know. Big guy, yeah. Uh, yeah, and then and then after six months, I was like, yeah, the novelty of washing up dirty plates wore off, <laughs> and and so I was like, right, I need to get a better job, and so I got a job uh, in an insurance brokers, and I still remember I was earning four and a half thousand pounds a year, that was my okay. handsome salary in those days, and I had to get a bus from my village to the town, and then a bus oh, from yeah. my town to the next town, and then a bus from that town to the industrial estate where the insurance brokers was, and I was a post boy, so I opened the post. And then did the filing and whatever. And again, I had great fun and I was earning a little bit more money than I had been. But after six months of that, I was like, yeah, actually, I probably should do my A-levels, go to university and give me a better chance in life. So I went back to college. I did a year of A-levels. I did uh, the first year, I got really good grades. Second year, I got bored again and just about scraped through my A-levels. In fact, I'd had an offer to go to University College London, which at the time was the third best university in the country, still is, I think, behind Cambridge and Oxford. And I needed, I can't remember what I needed, but I didn't get the grades I needed to get in there. And I, to, to this day, I remember all my mates getting their, their A-level results and celebrating and going straight to the pub. And I went home and told my parents I haven't got the grades I needed, having had them support me for another two years to go and do it yeah. and not, not got what they needed. And, I, and then my mum said, ring them up and beg to get in do whatever you have to do <laughs> and I rang them up and they're like no sorry you haven't got in and so I put the phone down and said mum they're not going to take me and she said get on a train and go and see them and beg to get in you've got to get in there you've worked for this yeah. this is yeah you, we're not supporting you anymore doing this you've got to do it <laughs> and and just as I was about to leave and get the train and I was to be honest I was more annoyed that I couldn't get down to the pub with my mates and have a drink yeah. than I was to have to go down the phone rang and it was it was UCL and they said we're really sorry we made a mistake. You had an unconditional offer. And oh. I got in. And I was like, wow, that's, what are the chances of that happening? So I got in and um, I then went off to university and, and uh, it was a three-year course with an optional fourth year. And I worked really hard in my first year. I really enjoyed it. I got really good grades, got first on a lot of things. And then in my second year, I was asked to be uh, the football club captain. For the for the team soccer as you call it and uh, the, okay. the club and we had seven teams and and I absolutely loved that and and all of a sudden I was like yeah forget the degree that's just something I've got on the side and uh, I yeah we were the first we were the first university football team to to have a shirt sponsor the first university team to have a UEFA qualified coach I spent all my life on the football team and I failed my second year 
And so I was like, oh, Christ. And, and I was like, yeah, okay, I probably need to work a bit harder. So I had to repeat that year. Um, and I got through that year. Anyway, long story short, I then got to the, my finals. So after four years, and I didn't even sit some of my exams because I knew I just hadn't done enough work. And, and I think in my head, I said, if you don't sit them, you can't fail them. You just haven't done them. Whereas if I sit them, I'm going to fail them. So there was some weird sort of uh, psychology going on there. And, and uh, so after four years, well, after, after 20 years of education, I left with, without a degree, which was, oh, like, wow. whoa, that's a, that's a big balls up, basically. I've mucked up here. And, and I, it was a pattern. I kept doing it. And I liked shiny toys. I liked new things. So I'd be good for the first year. Then I'd get bored and get bored and get bored. And I got bored really easy. I still do. Um, and, and then, yeah, going moving further forward, my... Uh, yeah. Well, I just want to touch on some of that stuff. I yeah, think yeah. it was incredible how you made the decision to go, this isn't for me. I'm going to go try these other things. And that's okay because not every day, like, if you don't try, then you don't know. Yeah. So without these experiences, I think that's really beneficial. And then I love the story about your mom go on the train and get out of here um, because sometimes you just have to, and I understand that it didn't get to that point, but there are points where you have to go make this happen. And yeah. there's not enough people that wake up to the fact of, okay, we heard no once. How are we going to get this to be a yes? Call someone else, call some, like a lot Assistance. of the, the, yeah. Yeah. yeah massive. Um, and I, I think one thing that you just made me think there that, What's also important, and what I think I'm one of my strengths is, is, is be nice to people. Because if you're nice to people, they're more likely to help you out. And if you're always nice to people, when you do need a favor because you haven't quite done something right or you haven't got what you needed to get, they're more likely to help you out and support you and trust you. And, and, and that, that's really important. Is, you know, someone sent me a message. I won't go into why, but someone sent me a message the other day saying, I hope this happens. I'm trying to. I'm trying to buy a football club at the moment, but they're like, they're like, I hope this happens. Good things happen to good people. And I just thought, what a lovely thing to say. But it is, I'll, I never burn bridges. I'll always try and be nice to people because you never know when you might need a favour or you might need a hand with something. And I think that's that's a key thing in life is it doesn't matter who they are, a smile or a thank you never hurts anyone. You know, it's, it's free. Why wouldn't you do it? Oh, absolutely. And I, I mean, I've done it a couple of times where you just wake up in the morning and even send it out to a couple of different people you speak with, or even if you haven't spoken with them, because we've all, your networks grow, you speak to different people, you haven't spoken to some in a while, and it's just like, hey, appreciate the friendship. <laughs> That's it. So I, I was listening to a book uh, by a mutual friend of ours, Simon Leslie, uh, listening to yeah. his book the other day, and one of the people he interviewed said that uh, every week he scrolls to the bottom of his WhatsApp list and just message, reaches out to people he hasn't spoken to for a while. And I did that. Uh, a couple of days ago, just went through, and you know, I was like, "Christ, how many messages have I sent here?" Go back, goes back about two years, but but it was like, yeah, I've just I sent 10, 15 messages to people, just hey, how you doing? Be good to catch up. So no, no motive behind it other than yeah. just be nice. They're nice people, otherwise they wouldn't be in my message box in the first place. So why wouldn't I reach out to them? I love that. Yeah, I mean, there's just so many different ways to lead with kindness and have that persistence so for you you're coming out of school you're facing adversity where did it lead to you next well so i i'd actually had my my dream job lined up 
I had 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 an offer from my, which at the time was a, a year's what we call it. I don't know if you do it in the states, but a year's sabbatical. So it's basically um, you get elected at your university to to run the university for a year, to run the student oh. union side of the university for a year. Oh, so wow. I was I was basically in charge of all of the sports teams, all of the uh, different uh, groups and societies, and I'd been elected into that position. So I'd stood for it, been elected across thirty thousand students, um, and I was like, yeah, this is my dream job. Now I'm now getting paid. For a year to run sports teams basically um, yeah and i'd organized a sports tour to barbados uh and i got back from barbados and found out i'd lost my job because i didn't get my degree and i was like oh man that's you know talk about coming back down to earth with a bump you know i've just had two weeks playing sports in the caribbean and i've come back and the first thing i found out is i failed my degree and lost my job and i was like well where do you go from here and talking about persistence i spent days just going around talking to every single person I could possibly find, basically begging for that job because I was so, you know, really wanted that job. And it didn't happen. And, and you know, talking about the being nice to people, I, I'd spent four years of my time at university. I'd worked part-time to, to sort of pay the bills and I'd worked at the University of London Student Union. And my boss there at the time was Ricky Gervais, before he's famous, obviously. Um, <laughs> But he was my boss there and, and he just left a few months before to go and work at an XFM radio station. But I bumped into him and we were having a chat and a beer and he said, so what are you going to do now you've failed your degree? And I was like, I, I haven't got a clue. I really don't know. And he said, uh, well, Jane, who's his other half, who's now a best-selling author, uh, at the time she was a TV producer. He's like, Jane's looking for a runner. You know, why don't you go and work for her for a month? And I was like, Brilliant. So I went and met Jane, who I, I knew pretty well, and she said, yeah, I'm looking for a runner. It's next to no pay, but it's a good foot in the door. And I then spent the next three years, two and a half years, working in television and, and earning good money, really enjoyed it. But but I was working for myself, so I, I effectively that was my first proper business that made money. Um, and it was I was a one-man band, but that was it. So there, that was, if I hadn't been not a good a good employee and a, a good colleague to Ricky, he wouldn't have he wouldn't have suggested I get a job with his partner. So that's where those you, you never know what, when or how someone's going to be helpful. But yeah, yeah, and it's, it's also a, being it's also being open to the opportunity, even though it might not appear as, hey, you're not giving me the high salary. Like, what am I not worth? Like, you know what I mean? It's exactly and it's taking the opportunity so so i did that job for a month and i was earning literally peanuts and i was doing i was we we would do an 11 hour day filming wise um but we would sorry not 11 hour day it would be an 11 hour uh, 11 day fortnight so we'd only get one day off every two weeks oh wow Uh, we we did a, a 12 hour day filming but i was doing props so we would go in and make the the studio look like the set uh, yeah. So it was an office. We put desks and computers in. So we had to do that before we were filming, and then we'd do twelve hours filming. And at the end of the day, we had to clear it all away and move to the next location. So we might spend two hours beforehand and an hour afterwards on top of the twelve-hour day. So we'd do fifteen, sixteen-hour days work, and we'd have to drive to the location and then drive home from the location. Oh so my I was doing, god! I was doing sixteen, seventeen-hour days and getting paid nothing. Seven, uh, Eleven days. Uh, sorry. Uh, yeah, eleven days every, or what was it thirteen days every, uh, every, every fortnight, yeah. and but it was great fun, and I loved it, and I loved the fact that you could, if you worked hard, you got rewarded because 
they gave you extra jobs and they'd give you a little bit of extra for doing this and a bit for doing that. And at, at, the, at the end of that, it was a month-long contract. I was like, what am I going to do now? But because I'd got on really well with the designer and, and I'd worked my socks off for her, she knew she could trust me. She knew she could rely on me. She got offered a job, uh, another job for six months doing, do you remember the film Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels? Okay. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's a film I did. They were making a TV series of it and she got six months work on it. And so she said, do you want to do the job? And actually it's going to be a thousand pounds a week. Um, oh, wow. And so for me then that was yeah, 50,000 pounds a year. That was more than my mates who got their degrees were getting in their graduate placement jobs. And so I said, yeah, I'd love to. And literally the next day, uh, I, I, before I started doing the job as a runner, I'd gone for a job interview doing pretty much the same job for a different university from, from the one that I'd okay. been offered and then lost the job. And, and they turned around to me and said, you were, you were really good, but you were our second choice. And I was like, yeah, you say that to everyone. I'm the, yeah, that's fine. But then I got the TV work. And then after that month of doing the TV work, Royal Holloway rang me back up and said, you know, we said you were second. Well, you were second. And the, the, the person we offered the job to was South African and they can't get a work permit. Would you like the job? Oh, like, my God. I was like, that was my dream job a month ago or, or, or the second best dream job after the one I didn't get. But I've now just been, and it was, it was getting paid like £20,000 a year. And I was like, but I've now just been offered £1,000 a week to do this job. And I was like, yeah, that would have been my dream job. But now I've got another job that's paying me two and a half times as much because I took that risk and I took that opportunity and I worked bloody hard and I built relationships. And, and that's sort of how my life's gone in, you know, ever since. I've just worked hard, tried to prove myself. And just kept looking for opportunities and taking those opportunities, taking risks. You've got to take risks sometimes, gamble a little bit. Yeah, and I love that perspective of, I've thought about it this way, is so a couple of weeks ago, we had the 4th of July in Tampa. And from the place I saw it, we were on this probably 10, 12-story building on the rooftop. And we got to see the whole city of Tampa, the beaches, and we saw all of the fireworks. So there's fireworks on the beach, there's fireworks in the bay, there's fireworks in the southern side. So we're seeing like 70 different fireworks go on at the same yeah. time. Now I say that because we had a holistic perspective of seeing everything go on at the same time. Yeah. Well, if you were just on the beach, you saw yeah. one firework. So yeah. for you, to sit back and you saw two fireworks going on, yeah. one being that job of running the college yeah. uh, sports teams, and then one with the TV running, it gave you, you yeah. had more options. Yeah. And I think a lot of times we get too tunnel visioned on this, this is my only path. And it's, who knows where you're going to go? Who knows what's going to happen? It, it's also your comfort zone. You know, people, Good things yeah. happen to you when you're outside your comfort zone. You can stay on the beach and be in your comfort zone, or you can say, well, actually, let's try and get up onto the 12th floor or whatever, and, and you're at your comfort zone, but great things happen. And, it, it, and I think that's always a, a good way of looking at it. I could have taken the easy option all the time and just taken that job, that job, that job, and that job. But actually, you've got to push yourself out that comfort zone, take the risks. And I always look at it as, what's the worst that's going to happen? Okay, I'll get another job. It doesn't work out. I'll get another job. You know, I'll, I'll do something else. If you believe in yourself, you know, I, my background after that, you know, is, is, since that TV work has been sales and I was quite good at sales. 
And so I always thought, well, if it doesn't work out, I'll find another job because salespeople can get a job anywhere. You know, if you can sell, you yeah. can sell. And, and so you've just got to believe in yourself and take a risk. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. And um, it, it it's really so important to go through these experiences and really trust yourself and your instinct and what you're able to do and what you think you can create. Um, and, and I, I think another thing that's important as well is, like you said about stepping back and seeing the opportunities, sometimes you need to step back and realize actually what, what's important to you at the time and in your life is just, you know, it's, what's the phrase they use? It's like a little grain of sand on a beach. To, 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 there's 7 billion people in the world. 99.999 of them don't really give a monkeys that you've just lost that job and you're thinking about another job. It's not, a, it's not, a, it's not like a world war that's affecting everyone. It's a tiny little thing. And, you get so consumed in it yourself and it becomes all or nothing. And it's like, shit, what am I going to do? Blah, 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 blah. And you're like, Gee, it's just, it's not a big thing, really. Life goes on. There's a lot worse stuff going on in the world than whether I've lost that job or I get this job. It's not. And you look back in a couple of years going, why the hell was I worried about that? Why did I care about that? It wasn't a big issue. But at the time, it's so important. So trying to step back and look at it from a bigger perspective is massively helpful. Yeah, and I think you brought up a major point. Um, I, I forget where I heard it, but it was basically if it's not going to affect you in five years, don't think about it because you're completely right. We get so overwhelmed in our mm-hmm. own life and we don't realize everybody, like, what's the worst thing? You go to zero, like, cool, yeah. you restart. Yeah. Who hasn't restarted? Walt Disney restarted 10 times, like, yeah. Yeah. before Disney really hit. And it's yeah. just this we think everything's on the line and it's it's that freeingness of knowing nothing's really on the line because you'll have another opportunity to try again. But my, my favorite quote uh, is, is one from Nelson Mandela. And it, and it says, I never lose, I either win or learn. Yeah, don't look at it as losing, look at it as learning. You, you can, you can I, I lost that job opportunity, but I, what I did was I learned that actually if I really want something, I've got to work to make sure I get it. Or actually, do I really want it as much as anything? Or is that not the be-all and end-all? So you, you can learn from anything. And it's, as you say, as long as you've got a few friends and family that love you, what, what more do you need in life, really? You know, in the worst possible situation, you sit down and say, look, I've lost everything. Well, you've still got five or six people or, or maybe a lot more but that, that are going to help you and support you and love you. And, and that was sort of it when I when I said to my parents, I'm going to leave, leave school after a year of A-levels. They were like, we don't want you to, but if that's what's right for you, we'll support you and we'll help you. And they said, you know, you're going to have to pay us rent and, you know, you, we're, we're, you, you want holidays, you've got to pay for it yourself, but you can live under our roof. And 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 that's all that mattered. I, that, that gave me the, the that gave me the sort of the, um, the courage to say, yeah, I've got I've got love and support. So whatever I do, they'll be there for me. So does anything else really matter? It's just a case of now how much do you win or lose by? And that's that's yeah. just that's just your personal choice then isn't it no absolutely and i i I love the approach your parents took because they didn't want to aid you in because they could have just said hey yeah come live at home for free like you're fine like you'll still be on family vacations we'll do everything you got like because that could not motivate you to do your own thing so i think that's pretty cool they'd already booked a holiday and, and we went to menorca and they said, this is the last holiday we're paying for you for, to go on to enjoy it. <laughs> and, and I remember spending a lot of time just walking and thinking. And it, it gave me a week to clear my head and really think about some stuff. Um, 
but yeah, it's it's just having those having those opportunities sometimes is what is what you need, and it's it's at the right time, happened at the right time, in the right place, and I don't know if I could be like quite that understanding with my kids, but it was great for them to do that, and I, I, I'll always appreciate that. Absolutely, absolutely. So let's fast forward. So you you jump in. What ends up happening down the line with your career? How did EMJ get started? I know those are two jumps, and there's probably some time in between. No, that's cool. I mean, it's, yeah, there's oh, 10, 15 years in between, but but it, it basically falls into sorry, it falls into two two categories. Um, I I left TV. I I got to the point where I was doing I was earning good money in TV, um, but I knew that I'd have been doing exactly the same thing when I was 65. There, w- there wasn't going to be a lot of progression doing what I was doing, and I'd be earning the same money, and a lot of it was very physical, which was great for me as a 20, 22, 23-year-old, but I didn't want to be doing it when I was 65. So I was like, right. I need to um I need to I need I need to make a change. And actually it was quite a nice sort of full circle in that the, the very last job I did in TV was the second series of The Office with Ricky Gervais, who was wow. T- who got me into TV in the first place. So that was quite a nice full circle there. And it, it seemed like a good place to stop. Um and then I didn't know what I, I spent I, I just met I just got together with my now wife, who had, I'd been with at university, uh, but we didn't really know each other that well at really, but I just we just got together as a couple. And so I spent about six months not really doing a lot at all, just enjoying life. We went a bit, did a bit of traveling and whatever. And then I was like, right, I better get a job. I'm running out of savings. Um, well, what year was this? How old were you? Uh, I was, uh, that would have been 2002, three, four, something like that, I guess. I'd have been about, uh, I'd have been about, uh, how old would I have been then? 24, 25. Oh, that's so, awesome. So, yeah. Um, and then, so I said, yeah, I better get a job. And I literally picked up in London in those days, there was a paper called the Evening Standard, which was a free paper that came out in the evenings and it had jobs you know, all over it. And so I picked up the Evening Standard, circled a couple. The first one I rang, got an interview, got a job. And that was that was my job. I didn't just <laughs> no sort of research into it at all. It was sales. And someone had said to me, you get on with people. Why don't you do a sales job? So I thought, okay, I'll give that a go. So I can't can't claim to have any sort of grand plans at that stage at all. It was just I wanted some money. Um, and, yeah, long story short, I worked there for a number of years. I then left and went and worked. So that was health, That was publishing. Um, so I was doing telesales for a publishing company. It was a lot of healthcare, but also other stuff. Um, I then went and worked for a year at a company called EMAP, which was the biggest uh, organiser of exhibitions in the UK in, that, in those days. And I worked on a big construction exhibition where we had um, – 45,000 people would attend it over a five-day period, I think it was, five or six-day period. But we'd have about 90,000 people that would register to come but couldn't get there. So half of them couldn't get there for whatever reason. I then got headhunted back to the publishing company and worked there for a few years. And in in that period of time, um, as you say, I get bored quite quickly and quite easily. Um, But in that time, I, I realized that our journals that we published just seemed to me anyway to come out randomly throughout the year when it suited us as a business. There was no logic that I could see from the from the reader's point of view or the advertiser's point of view. And then I looked at the the exhibitions business and thought, well, we did quite a bit of advertising, uh, sorry, quite a bit of marketing before the event to get people there. And we did quite a bit of marketing while it was going on to let them know what was going on. And then, because the event was every two years, then we don't do anything for 18 months. And there's these 45,000 people that, that were interested and registered, but didn't go. So couldn't we market to them and make money from that? And so I was like, well, if, if we did our healthcare journals 
after a big event in, in healthcare rather than construction, there must be a load of people that can't get to that that would like to know what was going on. So I, I basically put this idea forward, and this, this is when ebooks first came out. So we were still doing hard copies uh, with a CD-ROM on the front cover. And, and e-books had just come out. And so I had this idea that we could publish four weeks after the big healthcare congress and do a review of what had taken place for all the people that couldn't get there to keep them up to date with the latest developments. And we'd sell adverts in there at a thousand pound a go. And there was a hundred exhibitors. So we'd make a hundred thousand pounds, do it as an ebook, but with very little cost. What a great idea I thought. So I took that idea to my boss and then to the CEO and then pitched it to the, the board of directors. And um, I remember sitting in there and the board, the, the chairman at the time said, he was a, a guy in his mid-70s, very, very successful businessman. But he said, uh, it's a good idea, but we're not looking for new opportunities at the moment. And I just remember thinking, wow, I'd, I'd spent six months on this business plan by this stage. I was like, that's too good an opportunity not to do. And, and I remember thinking that as I walked out. And within a month of walking out of that meeting, I'd resigned and set up my, my business, my first business. Um, and I went from earning, I'm going back, when do I go back to now? 2000, 2008, so the start of the recession, 2007, 2008. And uh, I was earning £100,000 a year in those days, which was a lot of money in those days. And pretty much overnight, I went to about £10,000 a year. And I just bought my first big house. I just had my first, <laughs> child, just had my first child. And I just told my wife that I was jacking in this really good job for, uh, to run my own business. So that was quite an interesting thing to do. Oh my God, I can't even imagine how you're feeling. Were you, uh, I mean, those are literally the chains that usually keep people in because usually it's the chain of the house, the mortgage, the family, the kid. Um, so to have that trust in yourself and I, essentially, mm. yeah, sorry, but essentially no, on, the business was you would sell slots in this ebook. And each chapter would be a different provider. No, we would we would write a review of of the congress. So everything that all the all the, all the news that doctors needed to keep up to date with the latest developments, we'd review that. Write a sort of sixty page long review of everything that's taken place, and then we'd sell adverts at the back. Uh, and, and each okay. exhibitor would have an advert in there. So that was the idea. And yeah, it, it was a it was it was. A lot of people would say it was a crazy time to be doing it, the start of a recession, just had a new tone and whatever. But, but on the flip side, the way I looked at it was, well, now's as good a time as any to do it because if I can make this work now, which is going to be the hardest possible time to do it, it's only ever going to get easier. You know, as people start spending more money because the recession finishes, yeah. and, um, you know, all of that stuff. And I also thought, okay, if I don't do this, this was the thing that really did, that really swayed it for me. And this was the thing that really stuck in my mind. And I thought, if I don't do this now, I'm going to regret not doing it for the rest of my life. If I do it now, it might work and it might not, but at least I'll know I gave it 100% and I tried and I tried and it didn't work or it tried and it did work. So, you know, I couldn't live with myself if I'd, if I'd got to 60 and thought, yeah, I've had a good life, but I wonder if that would have worked. And, and that was the thing that made me do it. I was like, worst case scenario, it doesn't work. At the time, I was the top salesman in the company. I get another job in sales. I can I can yeah. go back to another hundred thousand pound a year job, or it might be not quite as good. It might be sixty grand a year, but I'll get another job. I'm a good sales guy. Or if it's not sales, I'll get another job in television or this or that. I knew that I could. The get opportunities a job doing are abundant. Yeah, yeah. you There's... work hard. People will. And you work hard, and you're a nice person. 
people will give you a job. Yeah. And, and you know, that was the way I sort of looked at it. And yeah, luckily it did pay off. That's incredible to make that jump and really go there. And now what has EMJ become? Well, that wasn't, I mean, that wasn't hear- EMJ. That was, that was oh. another, that was my first business. Um, so I, I, I left, I left, I think it was the September of, of 2007, something like that. And I'd been talking to another guy in the office about this idea. And then in the January of the 2008, I asked him to come and join me and, and we went 50, 50, uh, on the venture. I'd, so I'd got it set up and, and running and, and he put some money in and, and, and you know, without that, we wouldn't have got to where we, where we were, but what what we what what i realized after four years of doing that was that you've got to be aligned with the people you're working with uh he was a lovely guy we could go and have a beer in the pub and get on really well but what we wanted out of life in terms of the business were two very different things and he from my opinion wanted to lead a relatively nice lifestyle and just work the hours that suited him and and not push himself too much just to enjoy life and rightly so that was his choice whereas i wanted to conquer the world and do everything grow really big and you know and and that was right for me so what was right for him was great what was right for me was great but they weren't aligned so he wanted to go that way and i wanted to go that way and when there's only two of you running a business you, you, you know you want that and i want that well it's never we're never going to agree on it and it got harder and harder to the, the, the bigger we got it got harder and harder to sort of manage these decisions and, and um, cutting a long story short, it got to the point where I said, look, sell me your shares and I'll do what I want with it or I'll buy my shares and you do what you want with it or I'll have to resign as a director and I'll go and do my own thing and be in charge of my own destiny again. And yeah, that was the decision we came to that, that I would go off and do my, my own thing. And so I set up EMJ um, and I had me and a couple of interns to start with. This was 2008, I think. Uh, sorry, uh, 2012, I think. Um, and it's just grown since then. It's gradually grown and grown and grown. And, and we've got 80 odd people work for us now. We've got 1.2 million doctors in our database, well over 1.2 million doctors in our database. We work with all of the top 20 pharmaceutical companies in the world. As you, as you well, you, as you said in the introduction, we've won quite a few awards this year. It's, it's, we're in a good place. That's incredible. And I, I love the, the fortitude of I want to leave. The reason I'm leaving my job is because I want to run things the way I want to. And obviously, we try to hedge our bets with different partners in different ways. But sometimes that doesn't work out. And there's got to be that ability to go, I'm still ready to leave again. I'm not completely attached to this at any point. In which case you're attached to your mission, but you're not attached to the people. It's more, and it's not that the people are the people are very very important. It's just sometimes partnerships don't always work out. Exactly, and, and you know, I'd, I'd spent four years where I'd gone from a, a really good salary to earning next to nothing, and, and then gradually building back up to a, a, a decent level. Still not earning that much money again, but a decent enough level that I could afford my lifestyle. And then having to make that decision to walk away from it again was like, but I was like, I can keep doing this and not enjoying it and not being in charge of my own destiny. Well, that was sort of why I left the last place. I had a good idea, but the main reason I wanted to leave was to be in charge of my own destiny. And, and then to not be then in charge of my own destiny. So I made a decision that day, you know, or that, you know, that period of time, that if I ever set up any other businesses again, I'd never be a 50-50 partner, never. 
I don't mind being a minority partner or a majority partner or having three of us that have all got equal shares. But but there's got to be some way that you can define. You, know, you can never get to a point where you've got left or right and one wants to go left and one wants to go right because you just end up not going anywhere. And that was the key thing is we, we've always got to be moving forward. Otherwise. Yeah. No, that's an interesting philosophy. So for you, what's the, and I know it's something that is very important to you. What's really the culture of EMJ and how would you create it? How, because when you're going and building a business, it's like, Hey, we need to make money. We need to like keep the lights on. We got to get the sales. Culture is usually secondary, but how did you uh, go about that over the past 10 years? Yeah, you're right. When you start any business up, you, you've just got to make money. It doesn't well, it doesn't matter how you make it, but you've got to make money. If you don't make money, you can't pay the bills. You can't pay the bills. You haven't got business. Yeah, it's not a charity. You've got to make money. Um, and, and so w- what helped was I'm, I'm incredibly competitive, incredibly competitive, incredibly, incredibly driven. I want to be the best. Yeah, we used to have a joke at school uh, that there was eight of us that are still good friends now, and everything we did, yeah, it was playing a game of pool, a game of darts, a game, whatever. We'd always say, right, who's ranked one, who's seeded one, and it was always who's the best. Um, and it didn't matter anything else. It didn't matter, you know. It didn't matter if you were second and you were brilliant. If you didn't win it, you were nothing. You were first loser. And and so so that's been through me, with, you know, right the way through my life. And so to set the business up, it was just right. We've got to be the best. We've got to be the best. I then brought on board a business partner that I'd worked with. Uh, previously, and and after a couple of years, he bought twenty percent of the business, and he's very much aligned with me in terms of he's very very competitive, and we both wanted to be the best. And so, so we've over the years we we've talked about okay, what does that actually mean? What does that mean in terms of a culture? We, we don't, don't want to just say we want to be the best. So we talk about creating gold medal wins. We all want to be gold medal wins, the best us, the best version of us that we can be. And, you know, so I don't want to be the the best hundred hundred meter runner in Tampa. I want to be the I want to be Usain Bolt. Yeah. And if you if you want to be the best hundred meter in Tampa, that's great. But you're probably not going to fit into our company. If you want to be the next Usain Bolt, brilliant. We'll help you get there. You might never get there, but if you want to be, that's the important thing. You've got to, you've got to have that drive to be, and and that's that's the sort of competitive side. And and so we set some goals early on in terms of right. How do we make sure we're growing? And one of our goals, going back eight years was to get onto the Times fast track list, which we got onto two weeks ago, which was, you know, whoa, what an achievement that was. And so we're one of the 100 fastest growing companies in the UK. And that was brilliant. That meant we were growing fast. We're doing everything we want to do. But the, the, the first year of going for that target, we sat down and we said, well, we've had a really good year. We've, we've moved in the right direction, but it's been a bloody hard slog. I haven't enjoyed that as much as I thought I would do. So how can we make sure we're having fun as well? And so we said, well, let's put a goal in place to make sure we're having fun. What can we measure that on? And there's a thing over here called the, the, the Times Best Place to Work list. And, and so we were like, well, if we're one of the best places to work in the country, we must be having fun because otherwise people wouldn't want to work here. <laughs> and, and so this year we got onto the Times Best Place to Work list. So we, we're, I think, 36 best place to work in the country, second best place to work in healthcare in the country. And so that was a huge achievement. So that made sure that we were... We were driven to get the results, but we were having the fun as well. So it was it was sort of built around that. It's, we want to have gold medal winners, and we want to enjoy creating gold medal winners. And so we were like, well, 
how, how do we build a culture around that? And so we said, well, we've got to interview in a way that means we're going to get the people that fit in with that. Because if they fit in with that and we're all rowing in the same direction, we'll go a hell of a lot faster than if we're in a boat and people are rowing that way and that way because we'll be zigzagging yeah. all over. So, so we, we recruit on values rather than skills. So our, our interview process is we, we, you know, we'll get the CVs like everyone else would do and we'll do a quick telephone interview. If we, if we think you, you, you're getting to the next stage of the funnel, you have a competency interview. And that's to see if you've either got the skills to do the job, but more importantly, it's to see whether you've got the ability to learn the skills. Because we take a lot of school leavers or grads that haven't got work experience but they have got the ability to learn those skills because there's nothing we do that can't be taught by either us or by an external company to get those skills. We can train you those skills. The next stage is if you, if you, if we think you've got the ability to learn those skills, it's have you got our values? And as I said before, your values are right for you and my values are right for me. So there's no right or wrong values, but if your values aren't aligned with mine, we won't get on. If your values are aligned with mine, we will get on that. And it's, it's pretty much as simple as that. And, but I'll never change your values. Your your values have been ingrained in you by the people that brought you up. Um, and that's all you've ever known. And, and 90% of the time, I don't know, I'm plucking that figure out of the air, but most of the time, people will look at their parents and go, yeah, if that's good enough for them, it's good enough for me. And occasionally you'll get someone saying, no, I, did, I couldn't stand what they did, so I'm going to do the opposite. But most of the time, people say, well, it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me. And, and in all the interviews I've done over the last... 10 or so years, well, 10 years since we've been doing this, I guess. What, what I quite often ask at the start is, who brought you up? And, and tell me a bit about them. And have you got any brothers and sisters? And if so, what do they do? And, and I reckon, again, I'm, I'm making this figure up, but probably about 90% of the people, either they do something very similar to what their parents did, or their brother and sister did something very similar to what their parents did. Because if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me. So my dad ran his own business all my life that I can remember. So running my own business wasn't really a big thing for me. It was all I'd ever known. Whereas my uncle was in the police force all his life and my two cousins joined the police because that's all they'd ever known. And I remember them saying to me, I can't believe you you, you, you run your own business. I'm like, yeah, I can't believe you're in the police force. It's just that it happens so often. And so actually finding out a bit about people's backgrounds and how they grew up and, and what was important to them and all that sort of stuff can tell you a lot about someone and then if they're quite aligned with you that they'll be a good fit for that culture yeah i i completely agree with what you're saying because i think most of the time it comes down to that perspective that we were speaking about earlier with the fireworks of just knowing yeah. hey all, all i've ever known is someone who's yeah. ran their own business or the police fan like and i'm not saying it's one or the other but a majority of the time it is or there's that slight conflict where it's i don't agree with that i need to be my own person but it, but even if it's you know taking it to the job level is quite extreme but even if it's so because my dad was self-employed he worked ridiculously long hours i remember i remember when i was a kid my mum would lock him in his office so that we couldn't go and disturb him there was a little bolt at the top of the door that we couldn't reach that she could reach and he didn't want to lock himself in there in case he passed out or something and she couldn't get in. So she'd lock him. I think she locked him in there too long sometimes just to keep her a bit of peace and quiet. But but he, I just remember him working and working and working and that, that work ethic rubbed off on me. So when I was working in TV, when I was working as an employee at the publishing company, when I was working as an employee at the um, events company, 
and when I ran my own business, that's all I knew was to work. I've never been a financial advisor. So it's not that you're necessarily going to do exactly the same job, although you often hear people doing that. But that work ethic just rubbed off on me. And if you hear someone that's always done a nine to five job, they're probably going to like nine to five job because that's all they've ever known. If you find someone that's worked in the outdoors, you know, it might be as a as a policeman or you know, they were outdoors a lot. But you might go and do a job outdoors that's not in the police, but because you, you all you ever know about was your dad telling you about them working outdoors or your mum saying she worked in an office. So you've always worked in an office or so those things that you can't help but impact your life when you're growing up. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I'm thinking about it right now, and it's my dad drives every day to New York City from our town, and it's it can be a 30 minute drive, it can be an hour and a half drive. He leaves at like six thirty, six like he leaves at like six a.m., six thirty in the morning, and that's why when I was scheduling this interview with you, I was like seven a.m. Let's do it. Like yeah. you don't even think about it because it's just okay, because I have this thing at 7 a.m., me and my girlfriend were able to work out in the morning. We actually had an accountability of like, we have to be up because I yeah, have yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> so it was more you helping me. Uh, you use it to your advantage though, don't you? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And Because there's many days where we don't wake up until 7. Yeah. And like, hey, I got this. Yeah, I got this podcast. Like, we got to yeah. gotta be yeah. here ready to do this thing. Yeah. Um, that's fascinating. Um, Spencer, for you, I know in your life you've had many different mentors. Could have been Ricky. It could have been anybody. <laughs> but how has um, mentors and coaches really impacted your life? Uh, massively, and and you know you, you joke about Ricky, but 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 actually, you know he's not mentored me in the oh he did for four years as a, as my boss. But but um, I find people like that inspiring. Yeah. You know, I, I, this, this is a bit of a bizarre story, but whilst I was working at the student union with Ricky, one of the guys that worked behind the bar was was Will Champion from Coldplay, the drummer from Coldplay. Oh my god! And and the the, the whole band were at UCL, so I I know the band from there. But so so I now look at what Ricky Gervais has achieved in life, and I look at what Coldplay have achieved in life, and I'm like, they were no different to me at uni. They were just normal guys. Well, Ricky wasn't normal, but they were normalish guys that that worked hard knew what they wanted to do in life and, and worked really hard to get there. And they've been mega successful. And I look at them going, well, they're no different to me. So why can't I be that successful? And, and I think that's the key thing in life is anyone can achieve anything if they put their mind to it. So, so yes, they, they, yeah, Ricky did act as a mentor in that sense. Um, but coaches, I didn't really ever know what business coaches were until I went to a networking event back in um, probably 11 years ago, roughly, just before I set up EMJ. And I was going to help out a friend because I'm not a big fan of these sort of network events where you get a minute to say who you are. And I like a more natural get to know yeah. people over time and whatever. But I was going to help a friend out. And, I, and so there's me thinking, oh, this is my idea of help. Um, and I, I go over to get a coffee and there's this guy standing there and he says, hi, I'm Andy. Uh, you know, who are you? What do you do? And I'm like, oh, God, here we go. He's like <laughs> speed dating. Out, you know? And I said, oh, I'm Spencer. I run a healthcare publishing company. I said, what do you do? He said, oh, I'm a business coach. I said, all right, what's a business coach then? I don't know what they are. And he said, well, he said, if you go to the gym today, will you work as hard as if you've got a personal trainer there? And I went, no. And he goes, that's what I do. I went, that sounds interesting. Tell me a bit more. And we ended up chatting for about an hour. Uh, and I was like, oh, now this is my sort of networking. Now I'm getting to know him, someone and whatever. 
And that, funny enough, that guy ended up, well, I've, I've worked with him for over 10 years now as my business coach every week. Uh, and he, he now does future leaders courses for the team. And it, so it was a hell of a, a chance meeting at an event I didn't want to be at. Um, but but you know, he, he sort of, he just told me what it was and how he could impact it. And he, he was really generalizing it and trying to make it into that sort of 30 second or, or one minute elevator pitch. But that was enough to get my attention. And, and we chatted for an hour. And one of the things that stuck in my mind was, he said, have you got kids? And I said, yeah. He said, they tie up their own shoelaces. And I said, no, they're not old enough. They, you know, they're still little babies at that stage. And he said, okay, well, when they're old enough to do up their shoelaces, are you going to do it for them? I said, yeah, because they don't know how to. And he said, so you're going to keep doing that when they're 18? I went, no, I'm going to teach them how to do it. He said, yeah, because we were having a conversation about um, you know, how I was doing everything at work and I couldn't delegate it to other people because they couldn't do it as well as I could. And, and he said, but if you never teach your son how to do his laces, you'll be doing it when he's 18. So you've got to spend a bit of time training him how to do his shoelaces up so he can do it as well as you and maybe even better than you. And then you'll never have to do it again. And I was like, I'll get your point here. Yeah. If I train the team how to do the job better than me, I never have to do it again. And I was like, yeah. And he said a few things like that just in the conversation that made me really look at things differently. And I'd always been like, oh, I'll do it because it's just quicker than explaining it how to you to do it. But actually, that's a crazy way of looking at it because then you've always got to do it. Whereas if you can train someone else to do it, you never have to do it again unless you want to do it. Yeah. So actually, at, at the end of it, he, he said, um, I didn't really read a lot of books in those days. Um, I think because of my dyslexia and whatever. But he, he said, um, read these two books. I said, G give me one business book that you can recommend them. And he said, well, I'll give you two. He said, one is called uh, Winning by Sir Clive Woodward, who run the, uh, won the, the Rugby World Cup for England. And one is called Winning by, um, oh, my mind's gone blank, the, the uh, what's his name, Walsh, uh, CEO at uh, GE. Jack Walsh. Jack, uh, Jack Walsh. And, and I'm not massively into rugby, but I read that book first. And that, that for me, although it's a sports book, that changed my life. That changed my business we implemented so many things from that and and actually again in a in a nice way to sort of go full circle and and i guess um have you have you heard the expression your ras your ras no so it's your retic reticular activating system i think is the long version but it's it's if you if you say to me i'm going to go and buy a yellow cadillac you suddenly see yellow cadillacs everywhere yes yes i so, know so, so because my ras was set up for clive woodward after reading this book we ended up getting them um, as one of our keynote speakers at one of our events for the company in lockdown. And then we ended up working with him for six months as an executive coach to the senior leadership team. And it was just phenomenal. And then I read, I read the Jack Walsh winning and that's a harder read, but some really good stuff in there as well. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that coaching um, provides that other perspective. It shows you what you haven't seen. It, it, it gives you another way of understanding because some of the stuff uh, I do with Edwards consulting, it's really, uh, I mean, people can label it life coach, business coach, uh, mentor, whatever you wanted to. But in reality, what it is, is it's showing you that there's more to life than just your job or there's more to life and how to live that life exceptionally, I think is the main thing. Yeah. And I, I, I'm sure that I'm, I'm not sure there is a, as you say, a specific definitions of, of both, but the way I look at it is, I had Andy as a business coach and I've had other business coaches as well as Andy because I like to try different things. I get bored easily, but I've always, Andy's always been a constant for me, but I look at them as more people that 
that know know me and the business and they hold me accountable for doing things within the business a bit more like a personal trainer might do and so when particularly when i first started off with andy for the first few years you'd see right what have your challenges been what have your successes been what are you going to do next week and i'd go back next week and if i'd done them he'd be like great what did that lead to and how did that help yeah etc etc if i hadn't done them he'd be like well, why not and i might have a really good reason or i might have just said i just didn't get around to it and goes you know, the classic in the early days I didn't have time and he'd just say well you've got 24 hours in a day the same as everyone else so you have got time you haven't prioritised it so is this a priority because if it's not don't say you're going to do it and if it is a priority do it and it was you know, so it was that accountability that I liked in business coaches whereas I've had mentors and they typically for me are more people that have been there and done it so I've had people that have run businesses uh, that are, and I try and look for people that have got bigger and better businesses than mine so I can learn from them and say, look, I've got this challenge. Um, you know, how would you deal with it? How did you deal with it if you've ever had it? And I'm actually a member of a, uh, I was going to say a member of the supper club. They've just rebranded as Helm. But it was a, I've been a member of this group for probably six years now, I guess. And it's about 450 business owners in the UK. And we just meet up and they put specific events on. And it, they're, they're normally for 10 people. And you go and have dinner together in a private dining room and there might be a common theme so it might be you know uh, one of the things we did recently or was expanding into the us so you might have an expert that's you know a lawyer that helps you set up businesses in the us and then someone from the supper club or helm that sort of facilitates the meeting and makes notes and then it's six or seven other business owners that have either tried to do it and not done it or want to do it and you just chat and it quite often goes off piece and you'll be like yeah, we want to recruit when we're over there. And then someone say, yeah, but recruiting over here is really hard at the moment. And someone say, oh, yeah, but I've had a challenge with recruitment and I've used this firm. They're brilliant at recruiting. And you're like, and so it just, it's just talking to other people. And, what, and sometimes you'll get the answers to your problems. And other times you won't get the answers, but you'll find out that out the se- other seven people in the room, they've all got the same challenge. And that's just in a sort of weird way, quite satisfying as well, where you think, oh, well, it's just not, it's not just me that doesn't know the answer. I'm not the only thicko here. None of us know the answer. So actually, I'm not a thicko. We just, we've got a problem that none of us know that we need to find a solution for. And it's quite reassuring. So having that support, whether it's a business coach, a mentor, peers that you go out with, it is, it's vital. When, you, when you're the CEO of a business or the chairman of the business or the founder of a business and you're on your own up there, you could, you, you're people that you can pass the message down to and you can support them and they can support each other on a peer-to-peer. You've got no one to share your problems with sometimes, and you don't want to tell the team that there's an issue because you don't want to scare them or worry them. So having someone you can just talk to sometimes and get it off your plate, even if they don't have an answer, but they're willing to listen and understand, and they've been there and they, they've been through those challenges, it's so useful, so useful. A problem shared is a problem halved. Absolutely. And I think the peer group that you were bringing up is a really fascinating one, um, I think it was Napoleon Hill in Think and Grow Rich. He talked about that mastermind concept and learning from, that's why board of directors of like a massive company like Microsoft might have the FedEx president, even though FedEx doesn't know anything about software um, because they give you a different perspective and having those different perspectives allows you to become holistic in what you're doing. So uh, it's even better if you're not in a, dinner yeah. with four, 10 healthcare publishers because then it's competition. 
um, it's better if it's like, I'm not sure how we can work together, but I like you. And, and, and also, you, you, do, you don't know why people are doing stuff because it's not your industry. So you ask them questions. And then that, so when we first started off, because we didn't have a lot of money, we used to get a lot of interns in on a free month internship. So, and we, they, they weren't paid a lot, they were like minimum wage. Yeah, but they they'd come in with loads of ideas, and and actually, what we did was say that if you like it and and we like you, there's a job at the end of it, because it was a good way for us to get a free month job interview and really get to know if they were right for us. And we'd say to people, "Can you go and do this?" And they'd come back with a completely different idea to you'd have ever thought of because they'd never done it before. And you're like, "Yeah, I would never have done it like that," but actually, that might work. Sometimes you'd be like, "No, that won't work," but a lot of the time, it was like they they'd look at it. Com- completely new lens because they've never worked in publishing not, or healthcare. Yeah. So a bit like you say with the FedEx, why, why, why are you guys doing that? And to, to everyone else in, in Microsoft, it's really obvious, but to FedEx, it's not because they haven't done that before. And it, well, have you tried doing this? And you're like, oh, that's great. So, so actually a good story from Sir Clive Woodward, when he was, when he was uh, managing the England rugby team, they were deemed as really forward thinking. And this was before, before you know the internet really or that on the cusp of the internet and and he got uh, all the players using uh, laptops and stuff just to see if they were rocks or sponges to see whether they'd adapt and wanted to learn or whether they're like i'm not i'm a rugby player i don't need a laptop but because he was so forward thinking a lot in a lot of his ways and he was very successful you got all sorts of business owners that used to say to him uh, business leaders that would say can we come and see you guys training you know it'd be like if you had, it'd be like your national ice hockey team or something like that. People, yeah. if they're successful, people want to go and learn about them or whatever. And so he, he would say, yeah, you can come and watch us train on one condition. You've got to come in and say one thing that you think we could do differently or improve on. So you had all these people that had no idea about rugby necessarily, but wanted to be gold medal winners that would come in and, and they'd look at it from a completely different perspective and say, so Clive, why don't you do this? And he'd say, Never thought of that. Great idea. We'll do it. Or oh, we've tried that. And it didn't. But you're just getting that different perspective all the time, which is key to just not doing. One of our values is being different. We don't want to be the same as everyone else. We want to look at things differently. Absolutely. And what that does, what Clyde did, is it actually primes everybody who's coming in to not sit there and go, you guys are the best team. You're the best. Yeah. You're the best. It, they're all looking for like, why do they do this? Like, yeah. Because when you're set up like that, it's like, hey, like I know there's going to be a test at the end of this. I should probably start researching. Yeah. Um, have, you, have you heard, um, I don't know if it's a global or, or more of a UK thing, but have you heard of marginal gains? Yes. So marginal gains was basically what Sir Clive Woodward, the concepts he came up with back in, in the early 2000s was, he called it critical non-essentials. So it's breaking everything up into to 1%. And trying to improve them by one percent. So if you break it, if you break it into a hundred things, prove it by one percent, you get hundred percent improvement. And that's what he was looking at. Just come in and give me a little thing I can tweak. And that's he had a conversation with Sir Dave Brailsford, who came up with the concept of calling it marginal gains. But it was basically critical non-essentials, and that's where yeah. that whole thing came from. So yeah, but yeah, it's, it's a brilliant way of doing things. I think. It's massive. And then if you look at the 1% compound and it's more than 100%. Yeah, exactly. So Team Sky, Team Sky where Sir Dave Brailsford was, they, they did the Tour de France and they were looking at how they could get faster. And you, know, you think, okay, well, they're cyclists, they're on a bike. What can we do to make the bike faster? They did, they did research on, because they're staying in a different hotel every night for three weeks as they do the Tour de France, how well are the guys sleeping? 
and let's try using their own pillow from home to see if it gives them a better night's sleep. And it, and it did give them a better night's sleep. So they now have a lorry goes around to all the hotels with their own mattresses from home and they sleep on their own mattresses in the hotel. A guy goes in, swaps the, mat- swaps the mattress over and they sleep on there and they get a better sleep. And it might only make a half percent difference. But you, you find enough things like that. That's why they won the Tour de France, something like seven times on the trot or whatever it was. Yeah. Wow. Just a, just a I didn't know that. That's fascinating. Yeah. It's, it's brilliant. I didn't know that. That's really interesting. And I love stuff like that where you take it. So that one of the other things they did at the, at the, at the Olympics, uh, the, I think it was the 2012 Olympics or, yeah. So, you know, on a Formula One car or a yeah, Indy 500 car, yeah. put the heated blankets on the wheels beforehand. Okay. If, if the tyres are hot, they go faster. So rather than they heat up after a few laps naturally, but if you've got hot tyres at the start, they go quicker. So I don't know. There's the, the, I don't know the science behind it, but they go quicker if they're they're more sticky, so they get more traction or whatever it is. Yeah. So they were like, well, actually, if you're doing sport, if your muscles are warmed up, you go quicker. So they got they made these all-in-one suits that were like heated blankets. So before the races, they wore these suits to heat their muscles up, so that when they started, they were already warm, and they didn't have to you know so gradually warm the muscles up as they were racing. And I was like. What a great way of taking something that works in that industry and thinking, how could we apply that into our industry and making it better? And that's the beauty. That's what I love doing, is seeing the connections between different opportunities and making them work. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I got I got a couple more questions for you. Yeah. So who is uh, – so when we spoke previously, you spoke about um, one of your mentors, Steve. Yeah. And he talked about uh, – <laughs> his term WTF. Um, you see it on my, over my shoulder on the white. Oh yeah. About, it's up there. I have it everywhere. Yeah. And what, what, what is that? Does WTF mean what we think it means or <laughs> no, it's not the rude version. It's, 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 and, and again, it's uh, Simon, Simon Leslie talks about it in his book, I think, because Simon uses Steve as well. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, where's the focus. It's having that laser like focus. And it's a big, Bit like we said before about the, the business coaches holding you accountability, holding holding you accountable. We've all got lots of things we want to do, and we could spread ourselves really thinly and never get them done properly. But what's the one thing that's going to make you move forward today more than anything else? And, and yeah. focus on that. Where is the focus? If you have that focus, it will move you forward. There's another guy, uh, a British Olympic rower, and and they 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 were in one of the eight rowing boats, and they were. They were what I would call average elite athletes. So they would go to the world championships. They'd go to the Commonwealth Games. They'd go to the Olympics, whatever it was. But they'd always be fourth or fifth or they were never right at the top of their game. And they got to the point where they were like, we either stop and quit and say we were good and that's it. Or we've got to change something and become gold medal winners. Yeah. And so they came up with this concept of, will it make the boat go faster? (laughs) And every single thing they did they could only do it if it was going to make the boat go faster. So if it's like, should we go and have a beer tonight? Is that going to make the boat go faster? No. Or they might argue, well, yeah, we've worked really hard for the last four weeks training. We need a bit of a break. So yes, it will. But they would ask that question over every single thing they would do. It's, will it make the boat go faster? And that's the same as where's the focus? What's your end goal? How are you going to get there as quick as possible? And, and are you, or not necessarily as quick as possible, in the way you want to get there. It might be the most enjoyable way. It might be the quickest way. But are you focused on achieving the goal you want to do? And just, I, I, we used to work with a guy that was always busy, 
but we we used to take the mickey out of him say he was already tidying the bookshelves he would do anything but actually work that was going to move the boat forward he would just what's nigel doing oh he's such and such it was never anything that was important if, you know, if that bookshelf hadn't been tidied into alphabetical order it would have made no difference to anyone's life it may be a little marginal gain but but he'd always do stuff like that rather than the stuff that was actually going to move the boat forward and it's yeah you can waste time doing stuff that's you convince yourself it's important because you don't want to do that one really important job. But if you if you do that one really important job, it will have more impact than anything else. Yeah, absolutely. And if we're asking ourselves these questions, and that's why I have uh, some people I know who like want these big ideas, big goals, and they have this job and it's going well and that's fine. Start working on it on the side. Like yeah. start moving the boat forward. Whatever yeah. it doesn't, it's not going to be there instantly. It's not going to be it just. One step at a time. Yeah. And, and sometimes you get you get so bogged down because you've got so much to do. And I, I remember I remember uh, chatting to my business partner once and I was like, I don't know where to start, but so much. He said, Well, what are your priorities? And I wrote down about 20 things. And he said, Well, they can't all be priorities. Yeah, they can't be they can't all be priorities. What's the what's the number one thing? I said, I don't know, they're all important. He said, Okay, well, if you can only do half of them. Which half are you going to do? Write down the 10 most important things you're going to do. So did that. And we said, right, what's the top three things you could do? Well, that one, that one, that one. Right, out of those three, what's the most important? Right, that one. Right, start on that one. And sometimes you just need to do something like that just to get the momentum going. And people often say, if you've got a project that you know is going to take a couple of hours and you're like, oh, shit, where do I start? Right, just do five minutes on it. And actually, by the time you've done five minutes, you've start, you've made a few breakthroughs and you've you've had a bit of an idea. And next thing you know, you've done half an hour, then you've done an hour. It's it's taking that first step is always the hardest step, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, the brain dump is kind of uh, essential to moving it yeah. forward. So, Spencer, you mentioned about trying to get this club, this football club. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How's that going? And where did you even get the idea? Because, I mean, to own a sports team is a lot of people's dreams. Yeah, and how do you? How are you trying to materialize this and make it real? Uh, that's a bit of a sore subject at the moment, but it's um, so, so leading really nicely back to business coaching. Uh, when when I had my first proper session with Andy Andy Sleet, if anyone wants to look him up, um, he, he's a great business coach. Um, so I had my first proper session with him, and he one of the questions he said to me was. If you win the lottery tonight, and we we use this in, in in our interview questions. So if anyone comes for an interview and gets to the value stages, they'll get asked this. But if you win the lottery tonight and it's topped up every single night, what are you gonna do for the rest of your life? And and most people say, Oh, I'll give some money to charity, I'll go and travel the world. So like, okay, yeah, you've done that, and the, and it's topped up again. What gets you out of bed tomorrow? Oh, I'll I'll do this. Okay, I'll, yeah, charity is always on. Okay. So, it takes you 30 seconds to transfer money to a charity. What are you going to do for the rest of the day? <laughs> so are you going to go and work for that charity and be hands-on, or are you just going to support it by giving it money? Because that's not a job. That's just a bank transaction. And so we we, we went through that question, and I said, oh, well, if, if that happened to me, I said, I'm, I'm probably too old to be a professional footballer. We'll, we'll excuse the fact that I was never good enough anyway, but I'm too old to be a professional footballer, and therefore I'll probably never be a professional football manager. But... I could probably win it. I could, sorry, I could probably own a football club. In fact, yeah, I'd love to own a football club. And I said, actually, what I'd really love to do is to own a football club that picked up a trophy at Wembley and just see that my team that I'd built picking up that trophy at Wembley. 
it's like the Super Bowl, you know, winning the yeah. Super Bowl. And he said, okay, if that's what you really want to do, if money's no object, from this day onwards, EMJ is your vehicle for you to do that. And at some point, you'll have enough money that you effectively have won the lottery over and over, and you can buy a football team and you can do that. And that's what drives you to, 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 to run EMJ, to be the best company it can be. And I was like, yeah, I like that. I like that. So for, for 10 years, of, I've act, I mean, probably for all my life, I've wanted it. I've always liked running football clubs as much as playing. I love playing. I still, I'm playing five-a-side football tonight. I'm 47. I'm still trying to play football. Um, but I, I've always really liked managing teams and organising teams. And you know, from, from the ages of sort of 15, 16, I managed teams. Uh, and then I, managed, I, I took over at university. I was the sports uh, officer, uh, sorry, the football club captain for two years. Then I became the sports officer. Then I got the job, which would have been running all the sports teams that I couldn't. T- I've always loved that side of things, trying to take a team and making it better. I loved getting a UEFA coach, which no university had ever done at the time. Just doing things differently and trying to get. So I wanted to buy a football team, and my local team is in the uh, it's, it's in the National League South, which to, to it's, it's like the sixth division of football over here. See, the top four divisions are professionals and they're on telly. And then you've got two, they call them non-league. And yeah. so it's in the second division of non-league. And I've we sponsored the ground for a couple of years and we've sponsored their team and we've done all sorts with them. I've been involved with them in the past. Uh, and at Christmas time, I offered to buy the, the majority shareholder and I thought we were going to do a deal. And it was, we, we, we got to an agreement and then they changed their mind. And at the moment we're trying to negotiate, but it's sort of got a bit... Yeah, not so good. But I, I well, yeah. either way, either way, it's working towards a goal, and it will eventually yeah. happen. Definitely, definitely. I saw, I saw, I went to um, a 10x conference just down the road from you in in uh, in Miami. Uh, okay. In in, uh, in March, April time, and there was a guy there. Uh, I've forgotten his name now. He owns like he's a billionaire. Owns restaurants and uh, Tillman Fritella. Tillman, yeah. His story was fascinating and it massively motivated me because he he told he tells uh, what's the sports franchise he owns, the Rockets, the Houston Rockets, and how much did he, yeah, how much did he pay for them? It was like eighty five million or something. No, it was he skipped on it one time and then yeah. it was going to be like way cheaper and then he missed it and then it was he ended up getting it for I think it was it was hun- hundreds quite- of millions, wasn't it? Yeah, at this point, let me look it up really quick. So, so, so the story—I I can't remember the figures—but the story was twenty years ago, ten years, fifteen years ago, whatever it was. He had an opportunity to buy them for, as you say, eighty million or something like that. And at the time, he, he couldn't afford it, and it didn't work out, and he was gutted. And then, fast forward fifteen, twenty years, he ended up buying them for hundreds of millions, or it might have even been a billion or something ridiculous. Like so that. that's what it was. It was eighty-five million back in the day. Yeah. But he didn't have the capital on hand. And then in 2017, he got approved for $2.2 billion. Not $2.2 saying. <laughs> but it's still like the Rockets' current price is definitely higher than that. Yeah. So, but, but that, when I heard that in, in, in uh, March and I was in the middle of these negotiations, I was like, yeah, okay, I, I might not get it on this occasion. And it wasn't $85 million or anywhere near that we were talking. Of. But yeah, 10, 15 years down, I might end up buying them for two billion pounds. Who knows? But I've still got that on my journey to work towards. So yeah, that's that's where I am. 
Absolutely. And he bought it in 2017 for 2.2. The value at the beginning of 21 was 2.77. So you're already in the green a good amount. It's not a bad investment, is it? Not Not bad bad at all. Um, But Spencer, where can people, this has been, first of all, this has been fantastic. I really enjoy speaking with you. I know. Likewise. Thanks for having me. Really, We'll definitely have to do another one. Um, but where can people learn more about EMJ? Where can people learn more about you? Where can they apply for a job? Uh, yeah, well, uh, EMJ, EMJreviews.com is the website. We've got all of our jobs on there. You know, if, if you want to be a gold medal winner, if you want to push yourself to be the best you you can be, we'll definitely help you on that journey, um, particularly for salespeople at the moment. We, we, we've got so many opportunities for, for good salespeople. Um, and if you want to follow me for any particular reason, LinkedIn is probably the best place. I'm on Instagram. Uh, um, but but LinkedIn is the place that I do most of my stuff that, that, that might be of interest to your listeners, hopefully. Awesome. I appreciate it, Spencer. I'll throw all that in the show notes, and it has been awesome having you on. Thank mm-hmm. you. No, thanks for having me, Jordan. Pleasure. And hopefully I'll get to come over and meet you face-to-face soon. Absolutely. Great stuff. Thank you for reaching the end of the podcast. For that, we'll give you a complimentary coaching session in the link below with Edwards Consulting. Hope to see you there and have a great day and keep clocking in.